Hello and welcome to this episode of the World Extreme Medicine Podcast, the podcast for adventurous and curious minds. I'm your host, Dr. Will Duffin. We're an organization that celebrates medics from all walks of life who are having extraordinary careers and forging their own true path. And in recent episodes, I've spoken to Hinamoa Elder, a psychiatrist who's penned a book on ancient Maori wisdom. I've spoken to Lizzie Thorne, a junior doctor who's worked on expeditions around the globe. And today's medical maverick is Dr. Claire Fernandez. She's, uh, she has a specialism in occupational medicine and has the unusual and fascinating role of being Chief Medical Officer of the BBC. Claire qualified as a doctor from the Royal Free and University College Medical School uh, back in 2008. And prior to her role in the BBC, BBC, she's also worked with national and multinational companies in a clinical capacity, uh, the likes of Adidas and Rutherford Appleton Laboratory. Outside of work, she's a keen scuba diver and she loves to travel. And as you can see, Claire has certainly not had a conventional medical career path. So uh, Claire is you're absolutely the kind of people we like to speak to at WEM. Welcome to WEMcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. How's the lockdown hair coming on? Oh, I tell you, I've never known how many grey hairs I've had until now. It's, it's truly frightening. <laughs> I bet you're looking forward to everything opening up again. Oh, can't wait. <laughs> Me neither, Your hair yeah. looks pretty good though. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, no, it's kind of a, I've just embraced the bouffant. Uh, <laughs> you've just got to cultivate it, haven't you, and, and run with it. Just got to, yeah, you just got to embrace what it, what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure it's the same for you and based in Islington in London. Uh, you know, social contact outside of the world of Zoom is fairly limited these days, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's basically me, my husband and the cats yes. driving each other crazy. <laughs> Have you run out of things to talk about yet? No, not so much. But, but you know, every day is a new day. Uh, the other day I was sort of running around after him trying to cut his hair and he just refuses. So there's always something new. They are variations on the same theme, though. Yes, yes. Uh, I, uh, yeah, my, my wife's threatened to cut my hair, actually. I've, I've been holding off as well, but we'll see <laughs> see how things go. <laughs> um so you've had a really unusual uh, career path claire you know many of our contemporaries are still working in the nhs working on rotors uh they're beholden to to rotor managers they've perhaps had uh visions of of uh breaking free of the mold so to speak and you know, it's great to speak to people like you who've, who've gone and done that and your background is, is is occupational medicine. Let's just, I think that's a good place to start. What, just so that we get a sense of, of, of where you are with things. What is occupational medicine? Just give us a quick uh, sense of, of, of what that's all about. Yeah, and in fact, actually, most of my medical colleagues also don't, don't know what it is. Um, occupational medicine is, is essentially the medicine of work. So a good example would be um, the Glasgow uh, bin lorry man who crashed into um, some people who wasn't very well or the German wings pilot who did a similar sort of thing. And, and we that's kind of occupational medicine gone wrong, though. Um, we aim to keep people well at work. And some of it is statutory, like, for example, if you're working with asbestos, there's lots of kind of legislation around that. But some of it is simple things like somebody has cancer and how do they work around chemotherapy or in COVID, you know, how does somebody with medical conditions, can they work in a clinical environment? And how do, if, if someone wants to develop an interest in that line of work, so I suppose this is more of a public health, you're, you're looking uh, at groups of people rather than perhaps individual patients uh, how does how do you develop that that interest in your career well actually um it's both so at the moment i'm on a strategic kind of leadership role but i still have clinics where i'd see one patient and i advise say somebody with with cancer who works in um, a role where they need to have chemotherapy and I'm, I'm, i am advising like a doctor um on individual cases so it's it's kind of both at the moment. Now, 
there's several ways to kind of do occupational medicine. Uh, there are training pathways through the NHS where if you've done um, uh, previous, so you either had to qualify as a GP or do core surgical training or core psychiatry training or those sorts of things, you can go then into um, the training program as an ST3 um, and do it that way, um, which involves NHS posts, but there are also some private posts as well, or you can do it like me. Um, so I did my diploma, which is the part one of uh, the membership exam. I did that and then I, I, I started practicing um, in a private company and then I did my part two um, at a later date. Um, and then um, I'm just waiting to CCT now. So there's two different ways you can do it. You can do a formal training pathway or you can do the diploma and then carry on from there. Or you can just stick with the diploma and you can do the diploma at any stage of your training. Yeah. And you've actually written a book on occupational medicine, haven't you, Claire? Yeah, I have. So when I was doing my part one, I was, um, I think I was in my second year of GP training. And there weren't any, um, there wasn't any revision stuff out there. So I thought, well, let me let me write my own questions to test myself. And then I thought, actually, well, why not just publish it and, and other people can benefit from it? Yeah. And so now I also run courses as well, revision courses for the diploma. So so that's sort of passed on to other people. Super fun. <laughs> it's it's an interesting transition that going away from the NHS which is very much the conventional route for most medics and and then pivoting into the private sector where there isn't so much as a very non-linear and uh, unclear pathway for for medics um can you tell us what that what that was like going from being a junior doctor perhaps you're doing your f2 year and then going and working for someone like adidas what what is what's that transition like um what if I start with how it sort of happens, so after my F2, I started run-through training for radiology, um, and that was something I'd always wanted to do. I always wanted to be an interventional radiologist. Then I actually started, and I can remember sitting in the Whittington in London one day and just being like, actually, I don't want to do this. I only like the intervention, all the other stuff. I, I just just didn't really excite me and all my my peers um they all loved all of it and I thought okay there's either, there's something wrong with them or there's something wrong with me and I was like I can't do this so I didn't know what I wanted to do so I took a gap year and I went to New Zealand and I traveled and and worked as a kind of like I think they call it an F3 now you know yeah um and actually I came back and I looked and I realized actually there was more to just you know, it, it was more than just NHS work that you could do. And uh, that was a real eye-opener. It was almost like the light bulb above the head because, I, you know, I'd like medicine before because when you're doing a training pathway, you're basically just on an escalator. You don't have to do very much. You just need to tick a few boxes and then you get to the end. And I was like, great, it's really easy. And then I realised I, I don't really fit that, that mould. So... Taking that change, uh, going into the private sector um, was really interesting. So I'd, I'd sort of done maybe sort of seven, eight years of medicine. Um, so I was relatively comfortable in myself that I knew medically, you know, that my, that my advice is OK. But you go into the private sector and you're no longer necessarily watched, uh, you know, like a hawk by your seniors. Um, you're definitely accountable for everything yourself there's no one above you that takes accountability um you're right it is very much you're kind of out there in the big world so you have to be I think you have to be quite structured and you've got to do all your CPD yourself you do have appraisals and things but nobody's gonna you know nudge you if you're not up to date the day before your appraisal that's all on you so you know there is a bit of mental fortitude that you have to have but also then because you're less protected if you're dealing with big clients it is you dealing with them so I think you've kind of got a it's not something I think you can do as soon as you finish uh you know your f1 or something because you have to build up that confidence and an ability it's really important that you have that ability to be able to go and do that so I trained under um uh, another uh, occupational medic at first and then when his company got bought out that's when things kind of started happening and, and people started 
referring themselves to me. So I got all my things by by word of mouth rather than advertising. And it was just building those relationships, which perhaps I think are equally important within the NHS, but ultimately you're still going to work there whether people like you or not when you're in the NHS. But when you're in the private world, it's very much based on whether they like you as much as your clinical opinion. Yes, there's a few things that I'd like to just pick up on there, Claire. That, that's really interesting. Um, first of all, your, the, your role of your F3 year, and for those people not from the UK, that's after your foundation training in the UK, before you go into specialty training, Many people take what's called an F3 year, which is just a year to travel and explore. And, and, and some people are fearful, I think, of doing that, Claire. They're worried that they'll be left behind, that all their contemporaries will be rushing on and being consultants before them. But it sounds like that's actually been very enriching for you. And, and you've done some traveling there, which really helped you get a sense of purpose and place and 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 know what direction you want to take your career in what 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 did you do during that year you think that gave you that 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 kind of newfound direction in your life so before I answer that question um I just want to pick up on something you said about the fear so I thought about taking an f3 after my f2 and I thought well radiology was pretty competitive at that time so I thought well I'm probably not going to get it anyway so I'll just apply and then if I when I when I don't get it I'll do an F3 and then I got it and then I was like okay and then I was too kind of I didn't want to turn it down and so I missed that opportunity and I kind of regretted it because I think to do a good job in a vocational role like medicine sometimes you really have to find what it is, find that fire inside you that keeps you going. Because it's bloody difficult, you know, when you're on the wards and it's, uh, you know, 8 o'clock in the evening and your patient says to you, or 10 o'clock in the evening, your patient says to you, well, who's here the next day? And you're like, well, it's me, I'm back at 8 type thing. How do you do that without having some sort of, this is what I want? And some people are super lucky and they just have that. But I, I, I think I kind of lost that along the way. Because, you know, F1 and F2 was hard. So when I did actually kind of have that opportunity, um, when I, um, so I left radiology in in, um, ST2, me and my best mate went to New Zealand. And she actually, she's she's still there um, now. And I think what, what it did is it kind of, A, exposed me to different healthcare environments. um, Because in New Zealand, they really, kind of have much more of a kind of work-life balance set up. Um, It also helped me to kind of just develop as a person because whilst my best mate was there, she was um, across the country. So it was kind of me on my own having to meet new people and forge a new kind of temporary life, which I'd never done before. I'd gone straight from A-levels to med school, med school to work and never really managed to stretch myself and to be honest probably was too um immature and, and scared to do it before then um but it really then made me see that actually you can get off the you can get off the escalator the world doesn't end if you get off the escalator you don't get swallowed up and you know left to be a loser forever you can literally take that time out and discover more about you it's not just about for me well for me anyway it's not just about uh, improving as a doctor all the time it's actually improving as a person and having a really good quality of life and that makes you a better doctor you know by proxy yeah that, that's very interesting to hear you say that I think it's very easy to get stuck in that 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 pathway that's laid out for us to go sequentially on from A-levels to medical school, straight into foundation training, straight into specialty training, consultant, work, and then you eventually you retire and you think, what, what have I done what here? What have I actually achieved? I mean, I've got a great pension and I live in a massive house with a with a luxury car. But um, uh, you know, certainly for me, I think experience is the richest thing we can have in our life. And um, it's a shame to deny ourselves that when we're rushing towards some kind of end career goal that's uh, always slightly intangible, slightly out of reach. So it's great to hear that you've take, take, taken that, that time out and that, that how that has really benefited you and helped you to get to where you are now. 
The other thing you've you touched on there, Claire, which is great, is uh, this idea in the private sector. So outside of the, the, the traditional kind of NHS paradigm, which those of us in the UK are, are used to working in, where your role is quite defined, perhaps you're part of a bigger team. Everyone knows your role has been done by many people before you. Everyone knows what to expect. Um, when you move into the private sector, it's much less clearly defined. And, and you always have to kind of create your own niche. You have to build your own relationships. You have to work with people that don't perhaps understand what, what your role is. And you, as you said, people have to actually like you, don't they? It's not just about, uh, it's not a free and fair process all the time, is it? It's it, it building relationships with people and, uh, and, and furthering your career in, in those settings is it's a completely different kettle of fish isn't it it really is it really really is um I think that one of the things I found and, and perhaps this was my breaking point so when I was doing general practice training I won a fellowship to do um a year in Cambodia um in rural health which would be part of my training and um, I didn't take it up because at that time I was going to get married and I really needed to earn some money and it would have been a pay cut so they said, oh, you can do it next year in your final year. And then they 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 actually um, rescinded that. They said, you can't do it in your final year. And so I can do it. And so I was kind of like, this is annoying. I'm fed up of having my life controlled, controlled by this kind of health authority body or whatever that I've never met. Um, but when I went into the private sector, the first thing I did is say, OK, I want to be able to take six months off every year or every two years and go and have fun. And they let me. So I went to Indonesia, I worked as a dive medic, um, you know, I went traveling, I've done all sorts of things. And that's really, you know, that's, again, one of the we talked about the hardships of you've kind of got to build those relationships Um but one of the great things is, is that they let me go and do that. So I was still able to kind of find my sparkle and keep, make me kind of, make me tick and make me enjoy my life. So did you feel you could have, you could be more on your terms? Yeah, completely. And of course, it's not necessarily like that in every private company that you work for, because you know, some of them, they want to make money. That's the other thing. They, they want to make money. That's their primary goal. So if you, you know, it has to fit in within their terms and conditions. But again, if you don't ask, you don't get. Whereas in the NHS, I feel from my experience that sometimes if you ask, you don't get anyway. So <laughs> yes, quite, quite. Well, we, I think uh, often that's for lack of asking. I think we're very, uh, very compliant as, as medics. I think we're very... Uh, because a lot of the roles uh, are predefined um, in the, throughout the training grades uh, and we move through those so quickly, we don't challenge or, or we don't push for more flexibility in the way we work. I think we've uh, generationally, we've, we've just come to accept that we have very little autonomy over the way we work and the hours that we work. And I think there's certainly within the world of general practice that I'm in, there's been a huge pushback from that. The, the, the days of the 10 session partner is a 10 session a week partner is, is fairly gone now. And everyone is working less than full time. They're working more flexible, more per portfolio careers. And uh, it's very interesting to see that, that shift in, in the way that we're working now as, as medics. Well, it's great, isn't it? I mean, because how can you, I mean, burnout is just so prevalent otherwise because you are just continuing to do um, things where you don't have any demand or, or you don't have any control over the demands. But also I, I kind of do get it. So, you know, the NHS doesn't have much flex and we've certainly seen that over the last year. So I, I don't think we can be too hard on on the powers that be. But also they're, they're basically a big, big sort of behemoth that... that that has to have, almost have, it's easier to have set pathways because if you start having too much flexibility, they don't know what's going on because it's too big. So it, and it's, it's hard, I know it's hard, but I, I do really think that actually people seem to be having more flexibility. There's less sort of reticence to take an, an F3, an F4, F5, or however many Fs you want because um, people are now seeing that that doesn't damage your um, chance at specialty training. People see it as an asset. 
There you go. So don't be afraid to take as many Fs as you want. Claire yeah. Fernandez. <laughs> um, Claire, tell us about this BBC role that you've got. What a great job. How did you get that? So um, it, it was a little bit of luck, really, if I'm honest. But but um, so I, I worked I worked for, an, as I said, an occupational health company where we are the outsource provider for their occupational health. So they're employees that have health problems that need adjustments at work or need some advice um, so that they can be managed based on their medical conditions. And um, perhaps for me, it was the the good thing that has come out of, of COVID if there is such a thing, because they decided that they needed to have a chief medical officer and so they asked the company to um, send a couple of people over for interview. So sort of day one, I had one interview. Day two, I had a second interview, you know, and these were just kind of over coffee. And then the week later, I was I was there at, at Portland Place going, OK, let's see how we go. And what, what has the what, what has it been like? across such a such a massive organization you've got you've got headquarters in london but also in manchester and all around the uk um being the person responsible for covid or, or leading the, the covid mitigation across all of that what's that been like um daunting <laughs> in a word um I, I wouldn't want to be so um so bold as to say that I lead the effort. Um, there is there, there's a team of which I am part of, and I provide the medical input. They they and I know that I just do the medicine. They're 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 good at the other bits of the role and far better than me. It is um it's a challenge. Um, so it's not only UK. We look after globally. You know, twenty two countries we're based in. So there's challenge not only from the fact that Within the the four four nations, for example, at the moment, lockdown is um, or um, release from lockdown is progressing at different paces throughout the four nations. But then across the world, you've got that as well. So that's been difficult. But then also the BBC is involved in so many different parts. You've kind of got radio, you've kind of got productions, you've got people that work on content. So working across a variety of different platforms with a variety of different exposures, all the way from the, our reporters wanting to go into ITU, with, you know, to cover COVID, to um, our engineers that work in the boiler rooms that are working on the um, air conditioning and ventilation to keep it adequate. We kind of spread across all of these with a bit of oversight. And I've never learned so much in all my life. My brain has never hurt so much, but it's wow. it's it's exciting. Yeah, that sounds immensely challenging. So all those different teams that you're working with, those the different kind of clinical problems that come up, and you're expected to provide some kind of sensible uh, opinion on on whether they should do this or that. Uh, you know, that your inbox must inbox must be just full. I have never learned so much about ventilation yeah. in my entire life. And, you know, yeah. some of the ways that they're getting around people working in close contact and filming has just been really eye-opening. But, yes, it's um, it's a lot of emails. So let's think about um, so the BBC in, in terms of the, the, the film aspect of that. Um, because there's certainly parallels with what we're doing at World Extreme Medicine. We're working with Paramount Pictures. We're supporting uh, safe set protocols on filming of uh, various productions um in film and tv at the moment so it's very interesting to hear your perspectives on you know what what are your kind of key mitigation measures to keep your uh, on-set talent covid free so that they can shoot without masks without social distancing you know try and keep some semblance of uh, normality uh, how are you able to do that safely in your organization so um so we've joined up with the itv cmo and the sky cmo and we have a joint protocol that we agreed with the government um, to have a testing regime um, on a regular basis to allow people to work um, in what we call close contact, so within two metres. Um, so that's our kind of the primary gem, if you like. Um, but then productions themselves have been incredibly creative 
and they sort of run these things past me as you know is this a good thing to do and they've used things like dummies to do kind of um intimate scenes shall we say or I mean you can see on the on the TV as well, some they've got screens. So EastEnders do this amazing thing where they'll have two people on a, on a couch, but they'll have a perspex screen between them and they're just chatting to each other. Um, and then, you know, there's lots of protocols again for when they're offset and what they need to do when they're waiting to be filmed or when they're rehearsing. So they do that all at two meters or, or more than two meters. Um, without masks but then when when they're offset they've got set places to sit that are two meters away and they've got masks on and then there's all the ventilation and and the um the kind of hand hygiene and things that when people are touching things and passing them to another um we've got gloves we've got different things that you know the, the gophers are doing before they give it to the talent if you like there's a whole whole a whole host of things um that are in place it's so incredibly <laughs> complex, isn't it? And then you'll get these kind of questions, left field questions that just don't fit any existing protocol. So the other day I was asked about, um, they want to do water, uh, to involve water in in the shoot. So the, the cast of splash each other with water and what was the risk of spreading potential COVID and how would we then chlorinate the water and all this kind of stuff. Have you have you had some really kind of unusual issues that you've had to then try and solve and provide some clinical input to where perhaps there isn't yeah. an existing nice guideline or, or you know yeah. a, a, something you can really work from that's concrete? Definitely. So two things spring to mind. So the first one is when we were doing Strictly this year. Um, there was um so this is something I learned on on the job because every day is a school day haze is a technique that they use to create depth so when you're filming um you get shadows you get some nice effects that make things look larger than they are and so I was asked whether they could use haze and whether that would um account for spread of covid in the haziness of the filming now, I didn't know what haze was. Uh, a lot of Googling was had, a lot of um, chats with the lighting directors and engineers um, to look at what the medium was for um, the distribution of the particles that make up the smoky haze. It was super fascinating. Um, and certainly now I feel like I know a lot more about haze. And the second one was Top Gear, where and I, I, I actually watched this on TV and felt strangely proud, like I'd... I'd made a difference. <laughs> they had um, they had an ice cream van that they were doing ice cream out of one side and hot dogs, I think, out of the other side. But the van had set dimensions and they had to keep all of the guys at two meters. And so we had they, you know, I had to put, give input into how they could either modify to keep them sort of. I think in the end they ended up with one of them facing one way and the other one facing a different way. So they made two meters in a kind of weird um, sort of diagonally thing to keep them at two meters and keep them safe. So, yeah, I don't know where you find that. I wish there was a guideline. It would be awesome. But I doubt, doubt it's ever going to come up again. So perhaps useless. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny what you find yourself looking at things like seating plans on aeroplanes and thinking how can you space everyone out maximally so they're not exposing each other. And yeah, just just you have to think in a very flexible way, I think, and be prepared not to be comfortable with not knowing the answer and 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 just but know where to kind of look and how to bring lots of different information together just to make a sensible uh way forwards. Um I think that's uh it's a really valuable skill that it requires a lot of free thinking independence adaptability improvisation all of that comes into it doesn't it absolutely absolutely have you had any um have you had any major um breaches of protocol on sets because that's the thing we've struggled with is compliance with you know you can build you can design you can do this amazing risk assessment you can design all these protocols and you can have um all of that in place but then it relies on all the crew adhering to that have, have you has that been a challenge for you it has been challenging because um obviously their agenda is different so i was working with a very large production um with some with some very big um 
kind of international talent who I think they, they're kind of budget or they were spending £12,000 a day. So their um, main focus is to get their filming done within the time frame so that they um, don't uh, go over their budget. And so they're sort of like, well, well, we can't keep people at two metres because this scene is X or this scene is Y, or we can't put into place cleaning regimes because we need to get through a certain amount a day. Um, or, you know, they, they were filming in a, in a prison and, and, you know, they're sort of like, we, we can't do X, Y and Z. And you as the, as the clinician have to, have to make them understand in a way that fits in with their agenda why they have to do it. So, you know, kind of, you know, talk about reputation, you talk about actually how, how much worse it would be if a member of their team got COVID or if there was an outbreak, um, they'd have to stop filming anyway. So, you know, the kind of the benefits outweigh their need to press on. So, yeah, you have to be quite pragmatic. You have to be, you have to know as well that you, you have to be quite forceful sometimes because these guys or girls, they, they know what they want to do. And sometimes maybe they think they know better. I don't know, but they are very, very, we've got to do this. And so you have to really kind of stick to your guns. Yes, you have to be a real advocate for the health and well-being of of the the whole crew in, involved in that production, haven't you? And that that could be a real challenge, and it, we, that's definitely something we've experienced in certainly commercial expedition world and also in COVID mitigation. Is it is often that tension between the commercial interests. So if, you know, if a shoot's happening, there's a huge commercial pressure on everyone to get that shoot done, and it needs to be finished and. But it needs to be done safely. And often there's commercial pressure for you to perhaps uh, push things under the carpet a little bit or to downplay something. And and perhaps you have to be more of an advocate and, and step in and be assertive and say, actually, I'm, I'm not comfortable with this. How do you resolve that that conflict? You know, the the, the commercial conflict, and then also the the need to maintain safety and, and your professional duty of care to the all the people that your your, your clients, your patients, etc. Yeah, it it is. Uh, this year has been particularly challenging for that, but I think there's several things. So, and this is why I said at the beginning, you know, it's not something you these sorts of roles. Well, she can do them straight, you know, straight after you qualify. You really need to build up that experience and that confidence in yourself. Um, because I think the first thing is you have to know that what you're doing is in the best interest of, of health and safety, i.e. your patients, the employees. Um, you have to really know that. I think also you have to be prepared to um, be pragmatic and compromise on the bits that are not important but really then stick to your guns on the things that are. So I often have like, yeah, this is a nice to have, but this is a definitely must have. Um, I think also that there is this kind of thing about gaining that relationship and gaining that trust where people understand that you're not just saying no because you can say no, you're saying no for a particular reason and making or helping people to understand why that is becomes really really important because then it's like a negotiation really um you know you're influencing people um because in this sort of world nobody cares that you're the doctor nobody cares at all you know that's that's kind of incidental Um, I mean they do care in one way because they're incredibly respectful of the role um Mm. but at the same time they're sort of like well you know we need we know better than you sorry and we need to get you know we've got to get on with this you have to be able to explain why your way is the best way for the climate, even though it might not be the best way for the for them to do the shoot in terms of monetary ways. So it, it's complex and it can be quite frustrating, but the kind of upside is that once you go through all of that, you um, you can end up being really satisfied because this sort of stuff is making quite a big difference to not only how these people are working, because they're still like people in the NHS going in. They're kind of like a weird 
different front line, if you like. But also then when you see it on TV, it's keeping people like me who's working from home really happy because there's something new on TV. There's something else to do for a change. So just helping them with that is 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 really important. And yeah challenging but satisfying yeah you know what claire it is it is i think you know that is essential key work because if the likes of iplayer or netflix if they ground to a halt there's no new content i i genuinely believe there would be a revolt there would be an uprising with uh, uh pitchforks and flaming lanterns you know they're, they're, <laughs> it's keeping the country going isn't it this this content it's uh it's a real outlet so it's a uh, it's a way that um many people are i think coping with with the challenges of lockdown yeah exactly there's basically nothing else to do at the moment so I, I don't want to ever say that it's as important as um, some of the other key workers but it's certainly not something not to be sniffed at and from the, your, your last piece there's two key things I've taken from that so there there's this 80 20 rule so it, I think with the COVID mitigation there's there's so many things you could do aren't there and you've emphasized the the 20% of things that have 80% of the impact so really focusing on those and prepare to be okay to let other things go that are less impactful so with with COVID mitigation that's things like mask wearing hand hygiene social distancing you know the big the big things and not worrying too much about the little minutiae that everyone gets hung up on so I like that and also this idea of uh, and this is the kind of a leadership principle I suppose is is not is is actually being prepared to be accountable for your decisions and to offer an explanation for why and uh, presumably given the very technical nature of what you do and you're working with people who are non-medical who are perhaps from you know from safety production lighting sound whatever that that th- th- you need to translate some of the theory into into lay language into a usable format and has that been a challenge in in translating some of the jargon in in a usable way um yes and no so I think so I work very very closely with the safety teams and they are amazing I could not do what I do without them um I have so much respect for them um they we work hand in hand I sort of see us walking down the beach holding hands that's how that's how we work it's a beautiful image (laughs) but the challenge has been firstly sometimes learning about some of these things um so having to get my head around the technicalities of different like haze and then going okay right I think it's x y and z and then it's about relaying it to it's not it's never safety it's normally the the people the, the directors or members of the team i need to know it well enough then to explain it to them in a way that they can retain in in 5 minutes because they've got a million other things to do um but then also being able to relay that sometimes if i'm not sure to be able to relay that in a way that doesn't make them think, okay, well, this chick doesn't know what she's talking about, but in a way that sort of goes, this is, I think this is the best way, but we can reassess if it's not. So that kind of maintaining of that confidence to those guys um, in in a way that they can come back to you and not think that you don't know what you're doing can be a real challenge. Yes, I've had to. I've, I've purposefully dropped in just a couple of bits of jargon, just a little knowledge bomb early on, just like, oh, okay, so he's using the right language. I don't know what that means, but it, it's just kind of signposting that you've got a certain level of proficiency. I think that's totally legit to do that, as long as you don't yeah. completely bamboozle people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like I joke sometimes yeah. that on calls, all I do is wear glasses and say stethoscope a million times, and they're like, "Oh, mm. <laughs> yeah." But then, but then you build up that relationship, and, and some of the directors I've worked with have been amazing. Like we've got such a good rapport going on now, and they know that they can come to you then with a, with a problem that they might be having on you know on the ground, and that you'll be supportive and help them, but you'll say no when it, it can't be done. Yes, you must have built up a really nice relationship with your colleagues um, during this time. They there are must be a lot amazing. of trust there. And, yeah. 
I think it's always harder if you're working. Um, so our role, we, we're working with lots of new teams are forming new productions in different parts of the world. And that's always a huge challenge. I think and it takes time, doesn't it, to really generate those relationships, to build that trust. And for, especially for the um, the rest of the crew to trust you and your, your clinical input, um, especially when you're perhaps, you're putting up barriers sometimes, aren't you? And um, do you ever feel that you, there's a time where you really need to be an enabler, that you need to you need to um, know what to leave when there's a time to say, look, we've just got to move forward with this and put sometimes put uh, some of your own bugbears or your own uh, kind of gripes aside and, and, and just move things forwards in the interests of, of the production uh yeah not in not in production in world but yes in, in other parts of the work yes there have been times where I've really kind of privately to the right people thrown a massive hissy fit and said this is not okay but people have listened because again you pick your battles don't you I'm not going to chuck my toys out of the pram for because something's blue instead of red it was something that was incredibly important um, and it, it wasn't being done in the way that it needed to be done. Um, people sat up and listened and then, cool, things go back to, they do it the way that you want them to do and no drama, life goes on, but it goes on, you know, in a, in a, safe, in a safe way. Yes. Well, it, it's great to hear, Claire, that you obviously really enjoy this this role that you're doing. Is that right? Yeah, I do. I mean, it's hard for sure. Um, you know, sometimes when, when the government changes something, I know I've got kind of two weeks worth of, of maybe 10 hour days ahead of me. But the people I work with um, are bright, motivated. Some of them are just so creative and, and people that I've, I would never have met if I wasn't in this role. Um, and they're doing such cool things that, again, like, you know, my little doctor brain would never think about some of the stuff that goes on. And I'm like, wow, your lives are awesome. But even, you know, they've been such a great bunch of people. So you've got so many as well. Like you've got the, the security guards and the cleaners, to the talent, to the business continuity, to the safety, to all these different people. And they just, it's so nice to see how everybody works together so, so well. Yeah, that sounds like yeah, sounds a great place to work. And if if there are other listeners that are thinking, hey, that's that's, I'd like to do that. I'd like to break out of the medical, purely medical sphere, and I'd like to work in an organisation uh, where my contribution is really valued, where I can work more independently, where I can develop broader skill sets. What would your top tips be, Claire, for anyone that wanted to to do that, to jailbreak their career and do the kind of thing that you've done? So I think the first thing is to not do it too soon. So I have got um, members of my family who are little baby docs. You know, I still feel like a baby doc, but, you know, they're, they're the beginnings of their career and they want to do X, Y and Z. And I can remember being that baby dog going, hang on a second, but I'm a doctor now. I want to do this. And, you know, why, why can the nurses do it as soon as they graduate and we can't type thing? But actually, some of the complexity of what we do and the risk that we carry means that you have to be relatively um, secure in yourself in the knowledge that you can give to be able to carry that. So... It's something that I wouldn't suggest right at the beginning of your career. You know, get get a few years under your belt, um, go through a few specialties, be it whether you do it in, you know, NHS rotations or whether you do it ad hoc. You know, get some experience under your belt um, because you will still need the medicine because you're paid still to be the doctor to give the medical advice. The second thing I think, uh, and this is quite personal to me because this is how it's sort of happened in my career, is um, don't turn down offers because, and I mean this in the medical world, not <laughs> not any personal life, but because every offer, you know, to do something, to go somewhere, to do a bit of work, whatever, is an open door. And that might lead somewhere. 
it might not do, but it might give you that little skill. You might meet somebody that that introduces you to something. Um, something that you think is very, uh, very innocent can lead to the rest of your life. Um, and then the third thing I'd say is that um, they don't forget everything is an experience. Everything is a learning experience. Um, and I don't want to say that to make everything not fun, but everything helps you to grow and everything maybe happens for a reason. So don't take, you know, what people would class as failure or not achieving or something that doesn't go how you want it to go, don't take that as something to put you off. Um, learn from it, take something positive from it, and move on. Have you had any major failures in your life that have helped you to grow? Yeah, for sure. So I I, I felt that um, leaving radiology, I felt it was a massive failure. Um, it was something I'd always wanted to do. It was something that um, I um, could see the I could see the end and, and what the end would look like for me, and I, I felt like I was a massive failure when I just didn't bloody like it, and it meant I was only good at the bits that I wanted to do because I just didn't want to put any effort into the other bits. You know, it becomes a it becomes a horrible spiral where you don't like something, so you don't want to put the time in, and then you. Don't, you're not good at it, but you're probably also not good at it because, uh, you know, and that's why you don't like it type thing. I thought it was a huge failure. Um, that kind of nice little perfect life that I'd set, you know, set out where everything just falls into place got crushed. I think that was the first time in my life that that had, that, that had happened. And I'm lucky that, that, you know, that happened when I was 27. I'm lucky to get to that age before, you know, things really hit the fan. But it felt like a real failure. But actually, it was the beginning. It was the beginning. Yeah, and sometimes things have to fall apart, don't they, for better things to fall back together. Not my words, actually. Incidentally, the words of Mariah Carey, very wise, wise lady. Um, but that's very interesting, um, Claire, to hear your thoughts there. That everything is an experience. Everything's a learning opportunity. And whatever you do, you can you can take something from. I really like this idea that you know life's happening for you and not to you, and that you um, you can use everything, every experience in a positive way if you choose to do that. So that, that's really really powerful. That really resonates for me. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even, you know, every interaction, right, when I go and get my coffee um, on my treat days, every interaction builds up a new little friendship. But also the other thing is, is that then don't forget to give things back. So I think at the beginning of our careers, we're taking quite a lot. Um, and then when you get to um, the end stage, the consultant stage or something, those people that gave you things are perhaps no longer in a place that you can give things back to them. So pass it down, pass it on. Yeah, share the love, people. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I've, I've started doing lots of talks on Expedition Midsome at schools. Um, I started at my old school. They advised me to speak to them. I thought, fine, I'll, I'll do that. And then other schools within the city kind of said, oh, could you come and speak to our kids? And these are kids in inner city who don't really have access to the outdoors in the same way that I did as a privileged person and uh, that was amazingly gratifying and I, 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 th I completely agree with that sentiment I think you've got to be generous with your time haven't you as well as you know we, we're all the beneficiaries of the amazing mentors that we've had in our lives and experiences that we've had but it's important also to complete that virtuous cycle by uh, helping others and you know giving them a bit of a leg up as uh, whenever you can yeah, for sure. I think sometimes, you know, like med school and F1, F2 or STs or whatever, it um it, it's quite competitive, isn't it? You you know, you, you do want others to do well, but you also want to do better than them, perhaps because there's limited spaces or only some one person's gonna be at the top or whatever. But I don't think it, it should be like that. Um yeah, you know, it's, it, absolutely. It will, inevitably, because of com competition on places for medical school, it breeds a scarcity mindset because places are scarce. And um, I think 
that is problematic for future working relationships because you're there you're always then fighting tooth and nail you think if someone else gets an exciting role that that means there's less less of the pie for everyone else and you have to then kind of you have instead of collaborate you then have to compete with everyone and I think many people, many of my contemporaries, have taken that mindset that they've developed through their early years when they're getting all those exams under their belt and not let go of it. And I think that the, the more you can, um, as Carol Dweck calls it, a, a, an abundance mindset, the more you can cult- cultivate that where they, there is enough, in, 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 especially in the private sector, there's, there's, there is enough for everyone, isn't there? Uh, and the only way forward really is, is to collaborate, is to build good working relationships um, and to give back to other people, you 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 have you know we're all part of this big uh, this big infrastructure, this big uh, ecosystem. Absolutely, I mean, it, particularly in the private sector, um, you build on your networks because um, otherwise it's a lonely place to be. I'm the only doctor in twenty two thousand employees. It's an incredibly lonely place to be otherwise, wow. um, and so. But also they know something you don't know, you know something they don't know. We you know, together you collaborate, you can build build something really special um and support each other through it. So that um actually it's fun rather than a than a lonely old world where people hate you because all you do is tell them that they can't do things because of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> well, Claire, it's been an absolute joy to hear your story. Thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you so much. If anyone listening wanted to know more about you or reach out to you, how can they do that? So I think um, you can reach me on LinkedIn. um, But also, if you want to learn more about occupational medicine, um, you can find our Facebook page. uh, The Oh, God, I don't even know what my Facebook page is, actually. That's okay. We'll post a link in the show notes, Claire. (laughs) yes you can you can have a look at that (laughs) great great thanks very much claire and uh, good luck with all of the productions and all the various dramas and uh crazy left field clinical questions that will be fired at you no doubt over the next couple of weeks it sounds like you're in a good place to to handle it all thank you yeah and good luck with paramount (laughs) thanks very much yeah (laughs) cheers (laughs) 